Welcome to Junior to Senior, the podcast for ambitious devs who want to take their career to the next level. I'm your host, David Gutman. Today, I'm joined by Rand Fitzpatrick. Rand, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, David. Uh, so for folks who are meeting you for the first time, uh, you want to share a little bit about who you are, what you do? Sure. Uh, I'm the lead product manager on all of the secure line at HashiCorp currently. So that's Vault and Boundary in the cloud. Um, I've worked across Heroku and GitHub and AT&T and OkCupid. Come from a background of both uh, working in engineering and product management. I have been focusing primarily on product management for some time now, primarily in the domain of humanizing data and systems to make them more accessible and useful for folks. Um, it can be kind of hard to see that across some of the tools, but trust me, if you squint, it's there. <laughs> Built a awesome. ton of teams and you know, looking forward to chatting with you through this. Nice. Yeah. Um, uh, man, some of the, some of those names, uh, you, you have worked on, uh, a lot of products from some companies that I think are some of the most beloved by developers, some, some really impressive technology from, you know, Roku, GitHub, and now you're at HashiCorp. I think, I think, you know, anytime HashiCorp comes up, I think developers just kind of tend to, tend to gush. What do you think? I mean, you know, you you have a product background. Like, do you do you have a clear idea of what that is that that makes users so um, so into the products uh, at these companies? I think at HashiCorp, it comes down to a lot of the companies focus on understanding developers and really working toward developer workflows as opposed to. Uh, paying lip service to developer experience, which a number of software vendors do. And you know, even as it's grown up through di- distribution into the enterprise, it's really maintained that core focus on what does the practitioner actually need? How is this going to integrate into their day-to-day workflow with the rest of their software stack? And how can we make that easier and make more sense to get the rest of the job done? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Do you find that um, when working with engineers like that's that's something that you need to to teach or do you find that a lot of engineers just kind of get that and and work that way i I think it definitely needs to be taught and reflected upon Uh, you know a lot of people come to it on their own but there's i've seen a huge swath of the ecosystem where there isn't a lot of great reflection on a work style outside of one's own in terms Mm -hmm. of creating tools for other developers and creating tools for other developers entails asking a lot of questions, not just about what should this API look like or what language set am I targeting for my users, but in what context is this going to be used? How do I understand how to format error messages for this? Uh, <laughs> what, you know, what are the failure modes that are understandable and operable? How are people going to get started and how are going to people move through that early integration to production use and scale? And how do they interact with me as a either company maintaining a thing or even an open source producer creating and maintaining a thing? It's like a lot of folks don't think through the bigger picture and helping to bring engineers into a world where they ask those questions and have that empathy for how others might work in a whole bunch of different scenarios can help them build a much better mental model of what they're building for whom and why. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's so interesting, and and it's it's you seem to have really done a good job concentrating on that and and really using that to to build awesome 
awesome products. And I, I wonder, like, yeah, how do you how do you motivate an engineer? Like, how do you, you know, because I think I think some of those things you said, right? Like, oh, you know, understand context and how this is going to be used. I think, you know, I, th- I think if someone's a little bit more junior, they might think like, oh, yeah, of course I'm doing that. But like you just said, and I would agree, you know, I think a lot of engineers don't really give that deep, deep thought. Like, is there is there some way of motiv- made it, like giving giving a bit of motivation or some exercises or any kind of feedback loop to to show why that's so important? Yeah, I mean, one of the exercises I love to play is you know, just pretend like you're 12. Ask why <laughs> all the time. Like, take nothing for granted. Uh, another one is having engineers walk through an existing piece of the product and have them reason out either individually or in a team the why of decisions not just what was done but why like trying to forensically unearth the motivation behind various pull requests various features um, what happened and to try to construct the mental model of those who actually completed the work in the context of its execution Hmm. Uh, there's also a really ridiculous uh, analogy that i tend to use when getting developers into this mindset which is it's like setting up for a picnic. You know, I can either oh. tell you to, you know, hey, let's prepare a picnic for you know six to eight people for next Tuesday. Should be nice out. Or I can say, you know, next Tuesday at two p.m. I need you to have a basket, some a blanket, some bread, some blah, some blah. Like giving people the context is empowering mm-hmm. them to bring their mm-hmm. best ideas to the table. And I find that that being empowered is a really good incentive for a lot of folks because the more that you can give them free reign as opposed to sort of providing them a lot of constraints and micromanagement, the more satisfaction they tend to have. And it gets them into the habit of like, oh, what context do I need to totally own this end to end? I like and that. It starts a flywheel of, oh, cool. Like I, I've been through this process a couple of times now where by having the context, I could just run with it. What do I need to do to get the context this time? And then I walk them through that co- context acquisition process. Like, how can we actually figure this context out? What do you need from product? What can you find on your own? And how can you validate that? Mm. Yeah, I really like that. I mean, the 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 focus on the question why is interesting to me. I think sometimes I've heard of the relationship between product and engineering as being product is the what and engineering is the how. And uh, of course, you know, I think why is a much more important question. So for an engineer who's who maybe is early in their in their career, like is this something that they they can benefit from? Like is this something that that is going to be expected or appreciated from from either their engineering manager or product manager? Or is this just not something they need to worry about until they're you know more senior? Every day, all day, I will, I will hire a junior engineer who can proactively ask questions with a good critical eye toward the problem than someone who comes in, has a really high level of skill, but very little curiosity and just wants to punch through tickets. Mm-hmm. Uh, because one, <laughs> they're going to show initiative and bring ideas to the table that I can't because they're coming at, from a different perspective, but helping to share and create that mutual context. But they're also just going to have a lot more curiosity and going to move faster into understanding the problem domain and be productive in it. So, you know, yeah, I think junior engineers can definitely benefit from this sort of practice. And you know, I don't know that this is a universally held belief, but again, I 
preferentially hired for that trait mm-hmm. or for the willingness to learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's, um, so like a little bit deeper on that. I mean, so that's, that's some of your preferences. What, what else do you look for in an, an ideal teammate or, um, yeah, what's, what, what, do you, what are some of the character, characteristics of some of the best dev teams you've worked with? Humility, communication, curiosity, and a focus on being less wrong rather than being right. Hmm. Um, okay. I've seen a lot of folks get into a mode where they, they stake a claim and they need to defend it to be right in order to win. Uh, I much prefer that everyone's trying to achieve a better shared understanding and we're all working to be a little bit less wrong in our perspective. And that plays into the humility, it plays into the communication, and it helps everyone level up faster. Um, mm-hmm. So that's sort of the the crux of what I look for in terms of team composition. At the end of the day, this is all a human endeavor. Like I don't necessarily care what languages you use, so long as you're curious about using the learning the tools at hand. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I I don't chase the the latest fancy flashy <laughs> trend. You know, and this is coming from someone who's run products built on closure and Haskell and all sorts That's of right, esoteric yeah. languages. Like I, I've been there. I've done that. I don't prioritize that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The right, right tool for the job is, is certainly important. Um, yeah. So have, have you, I, mean, I guess I, you know, I want to go to the, to, to some of the things that you said before, right? So, so curiosity, humility, um, communication. I mean, I think, you know, I think, I think communication is kind of one of those ones that's hard to to nail down. I think I think a lot of people think like, oh, I talk all the time, like I'm great at communication, I'm like communicating all over the place. But is there something particular? Like, have you? Can you? Like, is there a way of 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 helping someone know that like, oh wait, no, I I can communicate better, or or this is an example of great communication. Sure, uh, people who can ask good questions, people who can be succinct in articulating a point and people who take the time to follow through and ask whether or not a concept was understood or not. Mm. The entire point of communication is to be understood, not just to put sound out into the world. <laughs> so uh, yeah. people who really emphasize the understanding and the transmission of information as opposed to the rest of it. Like I don't necessarily care that it be eloquent. I care that people take the time to be understood and understand others. Um, so, you know, f- for instance, people who ask questions that are above and beyond binary answer questions, like they're really trying to understand a subject, they're not trying to get reductive and just check a box. Mm-hmm. Um, people who write a thing or read a thing and then articulate back or ask to have articulated back what that meant in a reframe, just because that really helps build that trust mm-hmm. and mutual understanding. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the things I look for. Um, and, and then just good habits around it, good communication hygiene. Like, did you actually write more than two words in your <laughs> message? Uh, did, did, did you did you articulate in your PR what you were trying to do, especially if you, you know, squashed a whole bunch of commits in there? Mm-hmm. Um, just because the person who's reviewing that has to understand the context in which you're operating to understand how to evaluate the code. I think that, that also ties into empathy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, empathy the- is huge. Like. This is all a human endeavor. Like we're we're doing this for other people. There's no other reason to do this. Like if I'm building something that is not having a positive impact on other people, then I'm doing the wrong thing. And that's mm. you know everything from the product I'm producing to the organization that I'm building to my interaction with those people. Yeah. And so in my yeah, 
what I'm trying to think, right? It's like, okay, so let's pretend I'm a junior engineer and I'm thinking about how to build my career. I have a hard time imagining that that when I like like so so I'm a junior engineer, I'm imagining my future, imagining myself in the in the future being this awesome senior engineer. And it's it's hard for me to imagine that the, those standout qualities are communication and empathy, maybe curiosity, right? Because that's that's technically oriented. And and I wonder I wonder why that is. Like, because I know that a lot of the, you know, the superstar engineers that that we think of that are that are more famous on the internet that are really in demand, um, you know, they are they are quite talented technically, but I often think that it's it's much more of their communication and empathy that really takes it to the next level because that's ultimately what what allows you know if they're they're a a a language author or a framework author or you know a library author um or you know if they've written books then obviously that that's very much communication um if they run a community that's that's very much communication and so i'm just like I, I find it's, it, it, I, I guess what I'm grappling with is, is I find a lot of juniors don't really prioritize um, these aspects that you're talking about, and I'm trying mm-hmm. to figure out why. I think there's a little bit of survivorship bias because everyone who's prominent communicates well. It's not a distinguishing characteristic. It's not the mm-hmm. thing that gets the most attention. It doesn't stand out as different or unusual because it's a prerequisite. Mm-hmm. But because it's a subtle prerequisite, it, you know, isn't the thing that gets celebrated and or worked toward, I think. I mean, who knows? I could, I'm probably yeah, wrong. Yeah, no, I like that though. And, you know, one of the things that I, I look for when I'm interviewing candidates or even just like reviewing someone's GitHub to understand what they've been up to is, do they document their code? Is there a readme? Do they describe the decisions they're making? Do they respond to issues with like cogent understanding of the problem at hand? Because that's going to tell me so much about whether or not they've got you know, the desire to work in a team, be thoughtful about the process, export some of that from, from inside their head, mm-hmm. both for those who work alongside them, but also for themselves later. Like I've gone back and looked at some of my old code and it's like, what was I thinking? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's funny today. I think I, I kind of mentioned to you uh, this, you know, before the, um, before we started recording, uh, I've had quite a bit of a day uh, with a, a Kubernetes cluster and trying to get a whole bunch of apps migrated. And uh, I got to tell you, I am extremely thankful for uh, past David. I think he he had some uh, empathy for future slash present David. That was well, that was a, that was very kind, and, and I'm I'm <laughs> thankful to him right now. But that's very you know this is very common. I think. I think you know that empathy. It's not necessarily for other people, but it's also for yourself as you you revisit um, these projects. Uh, but I think one of the coolest things that that you're talking about is, especially for people who might be coming to development as a second career um, that you know don't have a CS major or or something like that. Um, it really means that a lot of there's like so much so many advantages um, to not just focusing on the tech um, and, you know, those technical skills and a lot of that, the, the ability to communicate and document and all of those things. It's like, you can, 
you can really present as a very, very senior engineer um, without having to learn a language or have experience building, you know, high performance systems or anything like that. Like there's, there's actually a very low bar preventing um, anyone with, with good communication skills, like that maybe they've developed from a previous career or something like that um, to really coming across as senior. Have you worked, I, I think like you must've worked with, with some people who, haven't gone straight from from like CS into and engineering all the way, right? I mean, a ton of my favorite former and current colleagues don't have CS degrees and come from a wide variety of backgrounds. And you know, I think that they often have a superpower in bringing that external perspective to how they solve problems. And the ones who do it best are the ones who can think about the system from a problem perspective as opposed to from an implementation perspective and then who can mm-hmm. communicate well around that problem to help everyone solve it as opposed mm-hmm. to just you know, slogging through boilerplate. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can definitely see that. Um, so how, how about you, uh, in your, like in your trajectory in your, in your career, like, is there, is there anything that you wish you had done differently? Did you always imagine that you were going to be on this arc? Um, yeah. How, how, how do you think about that? I would definitely did not always imagine I was going to be on this arc. Um, you know, I, I fell in love, in love with a problem space, which was how do we make data more actionable and accessible to people? Um, mm-hmm. And that sort of evolved into how do we make computing and just the act of creating software more actionable and accessible for people, largely because more and more of the world's both creative and economic output is going toward evolving software. And the more we can open that up to more people, the better it will be both for individuals and for business opportunities. So like, it's a sustainable and virtuous thing to try to work towards. So I fell in love with the problem space. I've been trying to figure out ways to move the needle on it. Definitely not where I thought I was going to go. You know, I spent a lot of time studying like linguistics and computational linguistics back in undergrad. They do not have a CS degree, um, mm. you know, but really just wanted to help people understand the world around them and figure out how to make that work. And definitely had a lot of missteps bouncing back and forth between, you know, uh, I think when we were in LA at and I was associate director of engineering for the search backend. It was like, I was trying to apply uh, computational linguistics principles to, to search for them. And that was, you know, maybe not the right move for a company that was primarily predicated on selling ads, but was trying to make the, the right calls to, to move things forward in a more human way. But, you know, I, and I've done a couple small startups that haven't been the right time or place for my skill set, And I, I've learned a lot about what I like to do and what I'm not yet ready to do. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm not sure that I've made about, made mistakes in that sense as much as I've had a lot of opportunities to learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When, yeah, so so that's really interesting about the the startups. Like, I I get the sense that you you wouldn't part- you know you don't particularly regret um, that. But if you you know if you picture yourself as a junior developer, like how would you what kind of framework would you use uh, trying to decide what type of company to to work for? Especially for juniors, I would frame it in what do you want to learn and not just learn but practice. And who do you want to be exposed to? Mm. You know, I have learned so much more from the folks I've worked with and the problems I've worked with them on 
than I have from any academic work, any even self-study. It's just being able to work side by side with people who bring a new perspective and can teach me things as we move has been everything. So you know, early on working with the folks at Bitscribe, uh, the company that later became Heroku, like mm. I learned a ton from Adam and Orion and Morton, like both in terms of problem modeling, product management, a uh, bunch of engineering practices. Like, it It's not stuff I could have learned at, you know, a big enterprise shop because we were tackling entirely different problem sets, um, which isn't to say you shouldn't go to a big enterprise shop. I had a very specific type of thing I wanted to learn. I wanted to get a much broader set of tools in my kit at that point. Mm-hmm. And working with a handful of experts who had a really broad range amongst them gave me that opportunity. So really focusing on like, what do you want to learn? Who do you want to le- learn from? And what do you want to be able to test about your own interests and or desires mm-hmm. is a framing that I've tried to recommend to folks in the past. It's like, do you, do you want to, or at least is your current understanding of yourself that you want to move up toward engineering management? Do you want to create your own startup? Do you want to work on open source? Great. How can you validate or falsify some of those assumptions and how can you learn as much as possible while doing so? Mm-hmm. And what kind of company is going to suit you there? Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. One of the things that, that, that I often talk about um, is, is probably a lot more ham-fisted than that but it's sort of that difference between i think it's mostly about company size right you know if you if you go to a startup um i think that that's probably in the opposite well it depends on i guess who the founders are and how much access you have have to them but um at a startup it can sometimes be a really unfriendly place for a junior developer um you you don't you know it can wind up being pretty frenzied and not a lot of opportunity to take time, ask questions. Uh, people may not have a lot of time to mentor you. There's a lot of things that you, you might just have to figure out on your own. Um, but on the other hand, I, I think for some people, that might be really good, sort of that, that, that license to <laughs> make your own mistakes, I guess. Like just like a lot of, like get a lot of rope. Um, and then, and then somewhere, you know, in the middle, you know, a little bit more established company, but still young and moving quickly might, might be a little bit better. Uh, and then, you know, of course you get all the way up to more established companies and then, um, you know, much, much larger corporate environments that, that do have like full mentorship programs and very established onboarding and, and progression. Do you find like, yeah, would you say like that, that sweet spot for, I mean, because, you know, now that I'm thinking, you mentioned AT&T, right? I mean, so many people that I know who I consider to be like wicked smart. Um, and, and some of them even had, had on the show, like Nate, Nate Murray and, um, Jay Donnell. Um, like that was, that. I mean, that was like full on corporate. I mean, it was a, you know, part of, part of AT&T. Anyways, what I'm asking is like, like, do you have a sense of, of what may, might be like a good company size? Like, you know, one being too small or too big, or it just depends on what they're doing. My personal take is that it has less to do intrinsically with the size and more to do with the acceleration or the, the rate of growth. Mm. Um, you know, whether it's a super small startup getting out the door, or they're running as fast as they can to scale. And then a startup that's really 
got hyper growth, they're trying to scale and prove their point and make an exit, it's going to be in a similar position. Uh, there might be a business unit within a enterprise that's doing the same thing. Uh, you know, I've got some friends at a couple of larger enterprises that are just moving at breakneck pace because they're launching new lines of business. Mm. Folks in those scenarios tend to have much less capacity organizationally to provide mentorship, but they also do provide that latitude to, you know, <laughs> sink or swim. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, for certain types of people who are just happy to work alongside others and not have formal mentorship and really just hit the ground running and are happy taking a couple shots on goal, like that can be a great environment. Mm-hmm. For people who want more structured mentorship, companies that are more stable, whether that be, you know, a sustainable smaller business or an enterprise that has, you know, capacity in place to really help people grow and nurture them, uh, I think is going to be a better fit. So it really depends on both who you are and what you want, as well as you know the speed or growth of the company, I think, more than necessarily just the scale or stage. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Yeah, and my, like the, the other thing that, I, that I've noticed too with um, talking to junior developers is, is, is maybe not even knowing what, what they want or what they, they focus on. Like how, how, like, is that just something like you either know it or you don't. And if you don't, you're just, I guess, try a bunch of things until you figure it out. Or is there some kind of, is there some kind of way, like, is, is there maybe a a more focused experimentation type of strategy that, that a junior developer can do to figure things out before trapping themselves on a particular path? Uh, I wish I had a good answer for that one. Um, <laughs> it's it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. yeah. Like I, I've thought about that one a lot as I, I've got a handful of younger siblings that I've been trying to talk through some of this with. And I've got a whole bunch of folks that I've mentored across the years in terms of NGEN, PM, uh, trying to find like their next thing. And I don't really know a, a good, fast way to help people really figure out what they want. That's that's It's a blind spot for me. Yeah, it's yeah, it's like I think of like some AI stuff like explore versus exploit. And I think, you know, not to be like too reductive, but there there's something about okay, the less the less sure you are, the more you should explore somehow. <laughs> I don't really I don't really have a good answer. I mean, I can think about I can I can kind of think about ways, right? You want to find because there's communities, it's never been it's never been easier to 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 find uh, communities, you know, there's, there's meetups for everything. Um, you know, there's lots of organizations that that are always looking for, for new people to come in and help out. And even if it's in a, in a non committal way, I think developers just in general, like, you know, it's that, it's that problem solving ability. Like you can, you can use software and other tools to, to solve problems for people, make their lives better. And, and that's a very welcome contribution to a lot of communities and a lot of organizations. And I think that's, that's, that's a, one of the better ways of, of exploring what you want to, what you want to do. I'm trying to think of like a, you know, a good, like a good concrete example. Um, So just a, a, you know, sort of a ham handed uh, split, right. would be something like, like product focus versus infrastructure focus or, you know, front end, back end, DevOps, something like that. And so 
you want to know if you really like front end, I mean, there should be like, there should be some community that you can be a part of. Like, like maybe, you know, I'm just, you know, one, one thing that, that I am, you know, a little dorky about is, is speed running in video games. And there's often these, these streamers who specialize in a particular game, like Super Mario 64 or something like that. Um, and, you know, they've got communities with like discords and stuff. And so if you're a little bit more interested in backend, I could totally imagine uh, volunteering to do like a discord bot or a Twitch bot or something like that, or, um, you know, front end, you know, making them like a, a, like a web app tracker for, for tracking their splits. I know there's like a million out there, but you know, it's nothing, nothing wrong with reinventing the, the wheel. Yeah, the thing I always try to be sensitive to when I'm talking about paths for this, because I, I agree, there are tons of amazing communities. You can also get involved in tons of interesting open source projects and or start your own projects just to test things. But I, I try to be really sensitive to the conditions under which people operate and the time or latitude that they might have available, especially if they're making a career switch or early mm-hmm. in the career and just trying to make ends meet. Um, and I know that a lot of these things can require a lot of extra time. So I've known a ton, ton of people who've just needed to take a jump into a job because they need to have the employment and need to be able to figure things out as they go. So I I try not to present a one size fits all in terms of a suggestion into that domain, because I want to make sure that it can accommodate that kind of Mm -hmm. persona as well. Um, Yeah. Like those communities are great places for folks to get involved. And for those without the time, like sometimes contract work can be a great way to get started because you get to work Mm. across a variety of projects in real short order. Um, It's a little less stable, can be a little bit riskier, but for those who need to move directly into the employment path that still need to figure out what may or may not be their strong suit, like that can be a great way to go, especially if you're part of a consulting company for a little while, you get to move across projects. You can move from front end to back end, whatever's required for the job. I think that's a really good point. Um, yeah, I mean, what about, you know, this is a world that I know less about, um, and I don't, I don't know, like agency work might also be, you know, mm-hmm. lots of different projects where you, maybe you can try different things out. Um, you know, that might also be a good way of doing it, but yeah, you bring up an excellent point about not everybody has the, those time, um, you know, ample, ample time for that, for that experimentation, which certainly adds, a an extra, an extra challenge. Yeah, I mean, Bitscribe, the company that most of the Heroku founders came out of, like that was a web consultancy in LA. Like mm. we worked across a ton of projects, and it was that exposure to a lot of different company needs allowed the team to sort of see the commonalities and what was missing, as well as understand like how all the various different pieces of machinery fit into that generalized framework. Yeah, and that led you know Adam Ryan and James to run off and start Heroku. So like getting that perspective, like being able to try a bunch of different things quickly is super, super valuable. And there are a number of different ways to do it. Some of which require, you know, or some of which enable uh, paid time as well as the community sort of open source engagement. Yeah. Yeah. I also like the, yeah, you kind of talking about um, them being able to, to work together uh, and then while they're working, figuring out those commonalities to then um, build Heroku. And it's also what you mentioned before about what, what's really important is finding finding the right people to work with. And it makes me think of uh, a lot of the the art 
movements and a lot of important cultural movements, you know, we, we can think of individuals, but usually they're, they're part of a, like a scene or, um, or other collective, uh, people bouncing ideas off of each other and it's much more fertile. And so I can, I can imagine that as, as being really important for, for career as well. And if things are really varied and lots of different projects and, and someone does have the opportunity to, to choose between different technologies and you've you've already hinted that that you've worked with a lot of the the more what i'd consider like esoteric or possibly even advanced ones how do you personally evaluate different technologies like how do you how do you decide whether or not to use something that's like new and a little bit out there or or something that's not you know my thinking on this has evolved a bit over the years um i I try to understand whether or not it is a good fit for the for the problem domain, and that really requires a lot of exploration of what is the problem we're trying to solve and what are the likely constraints or challenges in it. Um, you know, when we were dealing with a lot of stream processing, something like Closure made a fair amount of sense because it was a good functional language, uh, more list like, allowed us to build up a lot of really dynamic transforms of data that still had that functional component that allowed us to not have a lot of overhead as we were composing these functions. Uh, but it tied really nicely into the JVM ecosystem and let us work with some of the existing tools that we knew we were going to have to use, Kafka, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, that one was a, an interesting case. I'm not sure I'd make that choice again, but you know, we looked at the problem space, we looked at the benefits and constraints of the language and saw how they fit. And then also really thought about what is it going to take to leverage the ecosystem here? Like, do we have to write everything ourselves or is there a community around it, both for people to talk to as well as open source tooling to pull from that, going to help us along the way how stable is this going forward is this like you know, you know a language i happen to be super interested in right now is zig but you know it's 0.7.2 or something um it's certainly not something i would use in production it's not stable mm-hmm. but also how, how how well can you hire for it and above and beyond hiring for it i'm not looking necessarily for people who know it but people who can learn it like how easy is it is to is it to learn sufficiently for the problem at hand um there's a team at GitHub that I was working with that does a lot of the advanced language parsing for creating everything from dependency graph to the scope graph to all, a lot of the things that power language navigation under the hood there. That's all written in Haskell, hmm. um, or at least a huge chunk of it. And it made a lot of sense for the problem domain, like writing huge transforms across ASTs, uh, you know, a language that's great for building parsers in is going to have some advantages. Uh, also being able to do it in an incremental and composable way, like again, Haskell had a lot to offer us there. Um, was that easy to train for? Not super easy, though getting people up to speed enough to be productive in language was also not insurmountable. Mm-hmm. Would I recommend reaching for that as like your initial tool unless it was a really good fit for your domain? Probably not. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, what kind of, I mean, in... In the closure case and maybe the Haskell case, I think these are two right more more esoteric or more advanced um, choices. What, yeah, what were there particular trade offs or costs that that you had to deal with, even if it was worth it? Oh, sure. Um, you know, getting people ramped up because we would hire for again that sort of curiosity, communication, humility, uh, and you know, at least a willingness to learn the language. So there was always a ramp up time. We were willing to accept that cost. It was definitely a trade-off in terms of time and velocity. Um, you know, in the Haskell case, the GHC runtime is is uh, 
its own special beast. And if you really want to optimize it, you've got to dive really deep into the internals, mm. uh, which has its own special set of challenges. And when you're trying to do a lot with a very small team and be resource efficient, it's going to have a lot of thorns and you know, <laughs> tread a lot of new ground. So yeah, sort of sucks you uh, into solving a problem that that's not really the problem you set out to solve type of deal. Yeah, totally. Um, but you're going to run into those cases in a lot of different systems like, oh, you got to tune the JVM for this thing over here. Java is certainly not an esoteric language, um, mm -hmm. but you're always going to run into those corner cases. It just depends on when you're going to run into them, given the problem you're trying to solve and the tool chain you're trying to use. Uh, you know, most of the early routers and log systems at Heroku were all Erlang based. Uh, mm. Was that, you know, the easiest language for everyone to work in? No, but was it great for all the hot code, code reloading and distribution? Uh, totally made sense at the time. Still a pretty good uh, tool set for that language or for that problem domain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, looking looking more towards uh i guess looking now at the present and maybe towards the future and i know you know i know you you care a little bit uh less about those things now but but what types of technologies are you excited about or what types of technologies do you think are particularly solid um for solving problems like what what's on your what's on your favorites list these days or what do you think will be on your favorites list in the, in the upcoming years uh, I mean, it really, it sort of mirrors my product predilections where I want it to be human and accessible. Uh, so things that remove a lot of the mystery or magic from mm. the logic are especially appealing to me. But at the same time, I don't want it to be stripped down and industrial and always cater to the lowest common denominator. Uh, I want it to still be expressive and allow people to be creative in it. So it creates an interesting tension there. Uh, you know, that's one of the reasons I happen to like Zig at the moment is because it it removes all implicit control flow, all implicit uh, transformation, et cetera. It makes it all extremely explicit, but it still is extraordinarily expressive language that allows you to do whatever you want at a very low level. Um, mm. And it's got a great community as well. So very welcoming, very humane, great to get involved in. You know, is that the only thing I'm excited about? No, but it sort of exemplifies that you know, it, it it makes it really clear to understand what's going on. Anyone can dive in and read the code base and get it. Mm. The community is going to be the same way in terms of being open, accepting, real good focus on communication, and the really clear, clearly articulated purpose in mind. Like, hey, this is another C-like low-level language that is meant to perform at that scale and side of operations, as opposed to being you know a scripting language that's going to help you. Uh, Bang together the next data framework, like you know, high-level workloads like Python. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And in terms of, um, I don't know, maybe like higher-level tools and services. I mean, I think you know, it, it's it's certainly not just in the past five years, but it seems like a lot of the things that developers need to worry about often get taken care of. I mean, you know, let's, let's just, I mean, Heroku, I think was was pretty huge. It it let developers skip a lot of the the devops and sysadmin headaches if they wanted to what other what other services um have you seen that you've been you've been impressed with i i mean speaking of heroku and our extension some of the runtime environments i'm super impressed by nomad and yes i work at hashicorp no <laughs> i don't work on nomad but in terms of 
a much simpler, more elegant model than like Kubernetes. It's mm. just, it gets out of the way and it enables you to get the job done. And that's the way I like my tools. I like them to enable without introducing this huge convoluted <laughs> mess that I have to deal with. So uh, that, that one's particularly interesting to me. Uh, I'm looking for people to extend that notion and you know go toward the next Heroku-like thing where it just lets you focus on the application and not have to worry about the rest of the stack, but mm -hmm. not in a way that seals all the complexity away from you, but still lets you get into, under the hood when you want to or need to. I think that that's something that the world still needs. Yeah, definitely. And by the way, Heroku's still there. It's still awesome. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely. I think um, I just meant in general. I was I was pretty sure that there'd be other other services that are um, more recent that that you might be you might be impressed with. Um, it's funny that you mentioned. I'm totally impressed yeah. by like Fly.io and uh, Netlify and a mm, handful Netlify. of others that are just doing really cool yeah. stuff. Yeah, Netlify. I think like almost all of my front end deployments are are on Netlify now. Yeah, it's it's actually funny that you mentioned Kubernetes in the in the JSLA Slack. Uh, someone had asked the the room about load balancers. I guess they were working on some project, and he, he he's junior. Um, and someone, someone, uh, someone had told him like, oh, we need to be able to handle this, this huge scale that's going to come in. I need you to look at load balancers and I'll sort of leave that alone for a minute just because I don't know if that was the, the, the right direction to move in, but <clears throat> I had to intervene because some people in the Slack were telling him like, oh, the best way to scale your app is, is run it on Kubernetes. And <laughs> Um, I just, I just had to, to really step in and say like, look, look, everyone, like I'm sure Kubernetes is great, but this is someone who's a junior dev, like their focus is not DevOps and like system coordination, like orchestration. And like you said, like that's, that's its own ecosystem. There are huge books written on it. And you know, that that's really gotta be the problem that you want to solve, not, you know, what he was originally working on that this was a, an offshoot of. And I, th I think just to bring it back, like, I think it is important for people listening to, to be able to tell when some sort of technology or service or tool or whatever you want to call it winds up being its own journey or its own deep well, um, which is, which is fine if that's the problem you want to fall in love with. But it can be very dangerous if you have your own problem that you're trying to solve uh, and, and you don't really want to get sidetracked. Totally. And there's so many of those rabbit holes you can go down. <laughs> it's, it's, it's good to be picky about which ones you choose. Like I love the like edge compute space and mm. like some of the edge workers that they're doing it fastly and Cloudflare, especially mm -hmm. some of the runtime technologies under them. But those aren't themselves the problems that any of us are trying to solve at the moment. Those are mm -hmm. the tools that we'd use to solve them. And getting lost down those rabbit holes while tempting, because it's shiny, uh, can be, <laughs> so can cool. be a little dangerous. Yeah, totally. Uh, this has been great. Uh, so, Rand, where can people find out more about you online? Uh, basic landing page is over at tensoroverflow.com. Uh, I've worked on ML and data science too long and thought it was funny. <laughs> Great. Well, uh, thanks so much for joining me today. I'll put that in the show notes. Cheers, David. It's been good catching up. 
All right, folks, that's it for today. I'm David Gutman, and I hope you join me again next time for Junior to Senior. Having trouble finding senior front-end and full-stack engineers? Sponsoring JSLA is one of the best ways to get in front of the best JavaScript devs in Los Angeles. To learn more, head over to js.la sponsorship or send me an email at david at js.la.